0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. Well, I'm looking forward to continuing to worship God as we open the scriptures together. Um, We are in James chapter 2. If you have a Bible and are following along, James is towards the very end of the New Testament, just after the book of Hebrews, not too far before Revelation. James chapter 2, and we're in verses 14 through 26. You know, since we've uh, opened this letter together at the start of the new year, I've said almost every week, how practical the book of James is and many people who've read it and many people love it because it is so practical um, and I'd let you guys know about one of the ways that we see the practicality of the book of James is the number of commands James provides and how often he provides those commands so he's giving us practical things to do to obey the Lord he's giving us practices to live out our faith well, the passage of scripture we're looking at this morning um, is, stands out within the entire letter, letter because it's much less practical and much more theoretical. And one of the ways that we see that is that there are no commands in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. He doesn't tell us anything to do. So he's speaking to us on the level of theory. He's speaking to us abstractly in one sense he want, in other words he wants us to understand something not just do something he wants us to get something mentally he wants us to understand something and that is the nature of faith and how it relates to works he wants us to understand how do faith and works relate to one another and this is also along with being quite theoretical it is also very controversial this is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into the weeds of the controversy, but I want to share a couple of verses with you that James has already stated in chapter one that help speak to this controversy and where James lands on it. So the controversy relates to, are we saved through our good works? You know, fundamentally, this is what all religions teach besides Christianity, that we are saved on the basis of our good works. Do our good works outweigh our bad works? And if they do, then we've got a chance with God. The good news of the gospel is that it's not about what we can do, it's not about us earning our way in, it's not about us doing enough religious rituals. It's about God in His grace coming to us, doing for us what we could not do on our own, saving us all by grace. That's what the gospel teaches throughout the New Testament. James is going to say some things that come on the edge of, you know, confusing that, but I want to share some verses that I think help frame the conversation from where James is coming from. So James chapter 1 verses 18 and 21, and I've got a slide for us to revisit these verses. James says in chapter 1 verse 18, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit. Of his creatures. So James says here flatly, we are saved by God's own will. We don't will ourselves into salvation. We don't earn salvation through our efforts. We are saved by God's will. Furthermore, we are brought forth, that is brought forth to life, by the word of truth. In other words, the gospel. The good news of the gospel is. "...put into our ears, lands in our hearts, by faith it comes to life, and we are saved." So we're saved by grace, God's will, through the gospel. That's James' position on this thing. And then in chapter 1, verse 21, just a few verses later, he says, "...put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." So James is talking about a word that is able to save us. He's talking about salvation. And we are saved by that word as it is implanted into our hearts. Again, he's talking about the gospel that's implanted into our hearts as we hear it. And it's able to save our souls. So in these two verses, and there's other ways we could look at this, James affirms we are saved by grace through faith alone. We are not saved by our good works. And us doing enough good to impress God to let us into his heaven. We are saved by grace through faith in the gospel. So in light of those two verses, I think it helps frame what James is going to later say about the nature of true faith. If we have really been saved by grace, if we have really put our faith in Christ, then our lives are going to be changed. And we are going to start to produce good works as our faith is alive in our hearts. So I think that's his position on the controversy, if you want to talk about it later, I'm happy to, but let's dive into the verses, and I'm going to try to 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 preach this as straightforwardly as possible without addressing the controversy, so I wanted to say these things up front. All right, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving that person the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And in the same way, as Abraham, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the significant threats to any economic system is counterfeit currency, because we assume that if money is exchanged for goods and services, then that money is in fact genuine. The money represents something of actual value. And if the money in a transaction is not genuine, then a transaction hasn't actually taken place, right? Instead, theft or robbery has taken place. And so this is why our government goes to great lengths to ensure that the money we use is in fact genuine, not in fake. And so we embed our currency with all sorts of counterfeit protections. You've probably seen the way that a store cashier is handling a $20 bill that you've just given them. They'll hold it up to the light. And they're doing that so that they can see that little ribbon that runs through the bill and proves that it's genuine. Or maybe you've seen them swipe a large bill with one of those magic pens, I guess, that turns a certain color if the bill is not real. Well, they're making sure that the money is genuine. They're making sure that the money is real because only genuine money results in a true and meaningful financial exchange. Well, if you've been tracking with this sermon series or if you're familiar with the book of James then you know that James has been discussing mature faith. He's talked about what it looks like for us to be whole people whose faith is singularly, fully devoted to God. So he's talked about what it looks like for us to walk through trials with mature faith, what it looks like for us to seek God's wisdom with mature faith, what it looks like for us to handle our possessions with mature faith. And last week, in the first half of chapter two, he talked about not showing partiality, not showing favoritism, as we, quote, hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says in chapter two, verse one. So in all these different ways, he's been talking about what faith looks like and what mature faith grows into. But today... He's not so much asking, what is mature faith? He's asking, what is genuine faith? And so apparently within James' congregation, there are some folks whose faith needs to mature, but there are other folks who don't have faith at all. There are some folks who need to grow up in their faith, and there are other folks who need to get faith because their faith is a counterfeit. Their faith, so called, isn't real. Or to put it in James' words, their faith is dead and useless. So let's look more closely at these verses, and what we're going to see are three truths about counterfeit faith. James shares three truths about counterfeit faith. First, counterfeit faith makes an empty claim. Counterfeit faith makes an empty claim. Look again at verse 14, the start of this section. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He says, What good is it if you claim to have faith, but your professed faith doesn't produce a life of good works? In other words, what good is it for you to claim to be a Christian, but you don't live like one? James says, what good is that? Answer, no good. That kind of faith is useless. That kind of faith is as good as a counterfeit $20 bill. The person giving you that bill may claim that it's good, but it's an empty claim. The dollar bill is useless. It's a counterfeit. And James asks at the end of verse 14, can that faith save him. So the issue here is salvation, right? We're not talking about being a mature believer or an immature believer. We're talking about believing, being a believer or not. Can that faith save him? Can a faith that's not backed up by a life of good works save you? Answer, no. Again, that kind of faith is useless, useless to save. That kind of faith is as good as a t- counterfeit $20 bill. The person giving you that bill may claim it's good, just like some people claim to have faith, but it's an empty claim. That dollar bill is useless to buy you anything. It's a counterfeit. And in the next few verses, James is going to give an illustration of an empty claim. And it's also an example of what a life lacking good works might look like. So look once more at verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and then you one of them says to you I'm sorry one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving that person the things needed for the body what good is that So also faith without works is dead James says imagine a brother or sister so I assume he has a fellow believer here in mind He says, imagine them coming to you, poorly clothed, underfed, asking you for help, and in response, you say to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. How much have your words helped them? None. Those are empty words. Those are hollow, well wishes. You want your words to mean something? Do something. And so he adds that conclusion there in verse 17 in the same way. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So he drops the metaphor of faith being useless or a counterfeit, and he says it's dead. He adds the metaphor of alive and dead. Quite graphic. Counterfeit faith, dead faith, makes an empty claim. So a large percent of the people in our country, a large percent of the people in our county claim to be Christians. If they're marking the religious survey, if they're filling out the intake paperwork at the hospital, a large majority claim to be Christian. They identify as a Christian. And this was certainly true for me growing up and into adulthood for the most part. I would have claimed to be a Christian. I had an admiration for Jesus. I had a reverence for the Bible. I go to church pretty regularly. I was baptized as a baby. And again, I would have, for the most part, claimed to be a Christian. But, oh man, was that an empty claim. My claim was as worthless as a counterfeit bill. My verbal profession of faith was as useless as the empty well wishes to the poor, hungry, naked Brother or sister, my faith was dead because it was faith, as James says here, without works. It was a faith, so-called, that didn't give any evidence of being genuine faith. In fact, there was a lot of evidence to the contrary. Living for myself, openly defying God's word, not really giving two cents about Jesus Monday through Saturday. But I claim to have faith. James says, come on. You're fooling yourself. What good is that faith? Can that faith save you? Counterfeit faith makes an empty claim. Secondly, counterfeit faith believes biblical truth. Counterfeit faith believes biblical truth. Now you see, counterfeit faith is tricky. That's why James wants to teach us about it. In the same way that it can be tough to spot a counterfeit bill, it can be tough to spot counterfeit faith. Because as we said, counterfeit faith claims to be faith. The person says they have faith, just like as a young man, I said I had faith. But not only does counterfeit faith claim to be faith, as we'll see in these next verses, counterfeit faith believes biblical truth. So let's look at this, verses 18 through 19. James has just said, faith without works is dead. Then he continues. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James seems to be saying here that some people in his church have a flippant attitude about the importance of living out our faith through good works. He says, Someone will say, You have faith, I have works. What's the big deal? Their attitude is almost like, you like cheese pizza, I like pepperoni pizza, who cares? You say tomato, I say tomato, you have faith, I have works. What's the big deal? James says flatly, show me your faith by my works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, it is a big deal because our faith is shown by our works. And if there's no works to be shown, then there's no faith in existence, at least not genuine faith. Then he continues in verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it's as if James is saying, you want to know whose company you're in if you claim to believe in God and don't have good works to back it up? Satan and his demons. Congratulations. You do well. He says, even demons believe that God is one. Even demons believe are monotheists, even demons will give consent to the truth that there are not many gods but one true gods, and the demon shudder. They shudder in holy fear at the thought of the one true God, and yet they are demons living in constant rebellion against the God they believe in, living contrary to who they were created to be. James is saying the same thing can happen in our own lives. When we have a flippant attitude about living for God, but we affirm biblical truth, we support biblical values, James says, great, you do well. And you are also in the same group as demons. You have demonic faith if you believe biblical truth, but you don't live a biblical life. Again, I think of my own experience growing up and the church tradition I was a part of, we recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Many of you are probably familiar with the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient creed containing loads of biblical truth. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Ghost, and so on. We recited those words every Sunday as a congregation. And so by the time I was in high school, I could recite that creed Backwards and forwards. I could say it hungover. From the night before, I could say it stoned. This creed, this statement of belief, and yet my life didn't reflect this belief at all. James says, demonic faith. Even the demons believe. This is what's tricky. And we ourselves can even be tricked Counterfeit faith believes biblical truth. That's why we can't sit here and say, I'm good. I believe there's one God. I believe he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe Jesus died and rose from the grave. I believe in the Spirit. I believe the Bible's the word of God. I believe all this biblical truth. And then I coast through life thinking, well, that's all there is to it. James says, no, genuine faith is more than affirming biblical truth. Don't fool yourself. Counterfeit faith makes an empty claim. Counterfeit faith believes biblical truth. And finally, counterfeit faith lacks sacrificial obedience. Counterfeit faith lacks sacrificial obedience. So look finally at verse 20 and going forward. James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James gets pretty edgy here, calls us all fools. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James says, I've told you that faith apart from works is useless, and now I'm going to show you that faith apart from works is a useless counterfeit. But it's interesting, in order to show us the uselessness of counterfeit faith, he actually gives us two examples of genuine faith. In order to show us the uselessness of counterfeit faith, he gives us two examples of genuine faith. And this is actually the same strategy that expert counterfeit money catchers use. So in order to develop a perfect eye for catching counterfeit money, they don't study counterfeits, they study the real thing. And so they develop a good eye for a genuine dollar bill such that any slightest blemish in a fake stands out to them. James is going to do the same thing. He says, I'm going to teach you about counterfeit faith by showing you two examples of genuine faith. And both of these examples are from characters from within the Old Testament narrative. The first is the man, Abraham. So let's look at these verses again, verses 21 through 23. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac, on the altar. Now, the question is, in what sense was Abraham justified by works? Because other New Testament writers, especially the Apostle Paul, insist that we are justified by faith, not our works. So in what sense does James mean that Abraham was justified by works? Well, I think he answers that for us in the next verse, verse 22. Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac, verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And so the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So James affirms, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Moses writes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James affirms that in Genesis 15, God justified Abraham when Abraham believed God's promises. However, Abraham's faith wasn't shown to be genuine until seven chapters later in Genesis chapter 22 when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Or as he puts it here, Abraham's faith was completed when he offered Isaac on the altar. So the goal or completion of Abraham's faith was not fulfilled in Genesis 15 when he believed and was justified. The goal was fulfilled seven chapters later when he offered Isaac in chapter 22. James says that's genuine faith. That's the faith that saves you. Counterfeit faith, on the other hand, lacks that kind of sacrificial obedience. Counterfeit faith is content to sit back and claim to have faith and affirm biblical truth, but when it comes to sacrificially living out Your faith in obedience, the counterfeit, checks out. James says, not Father Abraham. He was the real deal, even unto offering Isaac. But James gives another Old Testament example, the woman named Rahab. Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter two. And this is during a time when Joshua is leading God's people into the promised land, and they come upon the city called Jericho. So Joshua sends two spies, or messengers, as James calls them here. Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to sort of peep the scene, see what's going on. Well, these spies are detected by the Jericho authorities, and they randomly, seemingly, they take refuge in Rahab's home. And then Rahab does what James says here in verse 25. In the same way, in the same way as Abraham... Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way so that the messengers wouldn't be caught? Now, this was an act of courageous sacrifice on Rahab's part. If Rahab gets caught helping out these spies, she is in major, major trouble, but she's willing to take that kind of sacrificial step in obedience, because her faith is genuine. Like Abraham, James is willing to say that Rahab is justified by her works in the sense that her faith is completed. Her faith is the kind of faith that's active along with works. That's genuine faith. Counterfeit faith, however, lacks sacrificial obedience. So, counterfeit dollar bills. They are revealed through all sorts of blemishes. They are revealed through all sorts of qualitative deficiencies. And cashiers and currency experts have to be aware of these different signs that show they're a counterfeit. And James wants us to be able to do the same thing with counterfeit faith. Counterfeit faith makes an empty claim. It believes biblical truth, and it lacks sacrificial obedience. Conversely, and James has been saying this throughout his passage, genuine faith is revealed through actions. Genuine faith is revealed not when we simply claim to have faith, but when we show we have faith. Genuine faith is revealed not simply when we affirm biblical truth, but when we live out the truth that we know. And genuine faith is revealed not when we follow God as long as it's comfortable, but when we sacrificially obey Him, like the patriarch Abraham and the matriarch Rahab. So what about us? What about you? James' words here are obviously meant to correct our thinking about what faith is. As I said, he's very theoretical here. He's trying to correct our thinking. But his words are also meant to be a mirror for us to examine ourselves, not other people. To examine ourselves. In chapter one, James likens God's word to a mirror. He likens God's word to a mirror. And so here he wants us to look into the mirror of his inspired teaching and be honest with ourselves about our faith. Is it genuine? Or is it counterfeit? Is it being lived out? Or is it being compartmentalized for whenever it's comfortable or convenient? Our Father in heaven, we come before you and together say, we're sorry. We together, Father, confess that our faith has not been alive as it should be. Our faith hasn't shown itself to be faith as it should. Forgive us, Father. Renew in us a right spirit. Father, humble us. Continue to pursue us. Continue to break us down until we face ourselves and get honest with you and ourselves and others about our faith or lack of it. And Father, we pray that through the truth of the gospel, as we experience your love, that our faith would come alive, that it would be active along with works, that our faith would be completed as we show love to one another, as we show compassion to our community, as we sacrifice for the sake of others. God, make us that kind of people who live out our claim to faith. We come before you and pray all of this in Jesus' name and trust you for it.